This is chapter 183 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm your host, Lisa Chernkovich, and this week we explore what it means to succeed in life and how that experience can be different for everyone, especially people of color. You've heard it takes a village to raise a child. Regardless of how you personally feel about that statement, you can't argue with the fact that children need adults who can nurture, protect, encourage, and even celebrate them. But not everyone is so lucky to have a network like that in their lives. Enter Tamara Winfrey Harris, whose new book of letters to black girls seeks to fill that much-needed void. She recently told me how Dear Black Girl, Letters from Your Sisters on Stepping into Your Power came to be and what we all can do to empower the black girls in our lives. Why don't we start with you telling me how a social media request for inspiring letters written to black girls resulted in this book? So I was doing an intergenerational workshop, and I thought it would be neat if the 12 girls that were participating left with a letter from a black woman. And so I offhandedly um, asked people to write letters on Facebook. And that call went viral. And instead of 12 letters, I got more than 50 actually from around the world because I got one, got a couple from Canada and one from Switzerland. And they were absolutely amazing. They were open hearted and vulnerable. And I knew that this had to be more than like just a moment, um, that this had to be something bigger and that. One of the easiest ways to get these letters into multiple girls' hands um, would be to compile them in a book. The letters are organized via topic. And like you said, some of them are just, they're so honest. I think they're so frank in the discussions that they have that I think these are conversations that maybe some girls aren't having with the the people in their lives. Mm-hmm. Should Should we be saddened that those kinds of messages that we need a book like that to talk to these young girls? Yes and no. I mean, life life is hard. um, And we do know that Black women very often receive lots of negative messages about themselves from all over the place. And those things are often, you know, we internalize those things. And so it's hard to guide a younger woman in you know, feeling good about herself if you're just learning to feel good about yourself and still struggling to learn about yourself. So it's a journey that I think we can take together. um, And this book is kind of here to help. Tell me how lies can feel like facts and your mission to untangle the two. You know, for instance, you know, a lot of the stereotypes about Black women have roots in antebellum America. The idea that we are hypersexual, which, you know, grew out of slavery. And so, you know, today we see, we hear, hear studies that show that black girls are violated for dress codes in schools, like thinking their clothes are too short or their, you know, shoulders are bared more than other girls. We also read things that say 60% of Black girls will experience sexual assault before they're 18, um, and that they're less likely to be believed than other girls. 
So, you know, that idea of black girls as being available, as being hypersexual, has woven its way into some of the beliefs of our society. And, you know, black girls suffer for it. So I think the first place that we can start is by helping girls understand that those are lies, reinforcing that, um, and then blasting back at people who state those things as facts and challenging policies like school policies that are unfair based on stereotypes. And we're not even just talking about uh, what white people may be putting on to these black girls, because these are things that have become so interwoven into society that you even have people within their own culture who are propagating these lies and repeating them and putting them on them, right? Exactly. You know, like I said, it is it is very easy to absorb when it's everywhere, when there's poison about you spread everywhere. It is really hard for you to not get sick um, and you to not start absorbing some of those things. So black girls are going to encounter some of those biases in their own communities. You've made the book interactive for the reader, why is it important for them to practice writing these letters to themselves? I think because this isn't just about passively reading. This is about a conversation. Um, I want girls to be in conversation with themselves so they can change perhaps the way they think about themselves and other girls. But I also have made available a free reader experience kit on my uh, website that has additional questions. So if, for example, mothers are reading this with their daughters or aunts reading it with their nieces, which I've heard people say that they're doing, they can help those girls engage with the issues um, that are in the book and have really good intergenerational conversations about what they read. I know you had a lot of feedback when these letters first went viral and the book's been out a little while now. What have you been hearing from readers? What's really exciting is, you know, and I just mentioned this a little bit, that I'm hearing a lot from women who say that they're using this book to start a dialogue with the girls or younger women in their lives, which is fantastic. That's exactly um, what I wanted to hear. And I'm also hearing from women who are saying that, um, you know, this is is cathartic for them as adults because it, it has healed something um, there, you know, the, the black girl within has healed something um, that they've been carrying for a long time. And there's something to be said, too, of reading someone else's experience that maybe parallels your own. And even if it's years later, you realize you weren't the only one going through it. Yeah, it's affirming. It's affirming hearing your story told back to you. And it reminds you that you're not alone and you're not singular. And this is something we can work through together. So what can someone do to help a black girl they know step into their power? I think first of all, and most importantly, is to listen. Listen to what she says. Listen to it, even if it's in defiance of what you think you know about her or you think your experience was, and believe her. Because very often we are, um, you know, we're kind of nurtured not to believe women and not to believe Black women in particular. Um, So I think that's very important. And also make sure the Black girl in your life 
has black girl spaces where she can be herself. What does that mean? That means that black girls need spaces where they are in company with each other and only each other so that they can have conversations like the ones in this book. And I briefly like just danced over the topics, but just kind of give us a taste of all the sort of subjects that you're that these letters cover. So the book covers some, you know, general advice and inspiration. But in between those things, I wanted black girls to see themselves in all the ways they show up in the world. And I wanted all of the varying experiences that they have to be addressed. So there are letters about being biracial. There are letters about being queer. There are letters about having good friendships. There are letters about family and all the different ways it looks. There are letters about choosing your career. There are letters about hard things like surviving sexual assault and incarceration and teen pregnancy. Um, So I wanted to cover many, many identities and all of the things that that black girls might experience throughout their lives. If there is a black girl listening to this interview, what do you want her to take away? I want her to know that she is loved and that she is supported. And most of all, I want her to know that she is okay as her authentic self. However she shows up, um, no matter where she lives, no matter what she looks like, no matter if she doesn't fit with what she feels other people think she should be, and no matter what mistakes she has made and no matter what has happened to her, She is valuable and she is loved. I think that's a really important life lesson to be learned. And hopefully the girls out there won't have to wait too long because of books like yours. Thank you so, so much. We've been talking with Tamara Winfrey Harris. The new book is Dear Black Girl, Letters from Your Sisters on Stepping into Your Power. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. The U.S. is aptly known as a melting pot, a place where people from all over the world have come for centuries in search of a better future for their families. Unfortunately, there are many groups who've been left out of the narrative of American history and whose contributions continue to be sidelined even today. So what is it like to grow up in that world? Sanjana Suthian offers a glimpse and a critique in her debut novel, Gold Diggers, which follows two Indian-American families in the post-9-11 suburbs of Atlanta. So first off, congratulations on all the praise you've been getting. Did you ever think, and this is to borrow some of your words, you would write yourself into America with your debut? Um, No, I definitely didn't. I mean, one of the premises of the book is that that's pretty hard to do if you are um, a young person of color growing up uh, when I grew up in that post 9-11 era. It uh, it's pretty much a dream come true right now. Your book has been described as satire, witty, a melting pot of immigrant stories and even a thriller. Do you agree with all that? Is that accurate? I'm glad that people are seeing so many things in the book. I never had any of this kind of market language around the book when I was writing it. Um, I think I have a sense of humor, but I definitely didn't intend to write a satire. I mean, I think the book the book has my worldview, and my worldview is a little bit snarky, um, I think fairly loving, um, and, and the book has magic, it has immigrants, and it has a sense of loss alongside the humor. Um, that's kind of how I see it. 
your main characters, Neil and Anita, are under a lot of pressure to succeed in America by their Indian immigrant parents. And the way they do this in your book is by stealing gold, melting it down, mixing it with some lemonade, and drinking it. Now you have to tell me where this idea came from. Um, well, well and concisely explained. Um, I originally had the idea to write about gold thefts in the Indian American community because there was a spate of gold thefts um, in my community growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. And these thefts actually kind of happened almost anywhere that you find clusters of Indian people. And the reason is that we keep a little too much gold in the house and it's often not Secure. Sorry to spill the beans, but uh, my uh, my mom always said, you know, people are getting blamed for this who are outside the community. But she she loves the good mafia story, loves the good crime yarn, and she always said there are people inside the community who are responsible for this because these thieves know exactly where in the house to go, and they know when people are out of town, etc. And so I, I wanted to write about gold thefts, uh, and I, I had the idea to write about a mother and a daughter in the community who were a little bit ostracized, who were maybe on the outside of the community, and therefore had a reason to start stealing. Um, the magic came a little bit later, um, and it became a more playful way to write about gold theft, because I realized that for these characters, it wasn't going to be about simply stealing gold for cash, it was actually going to be about kind of trying to steal the ambitions of other people in the community. And using magic gave me a way, using magic gave me a way to literalize that metaphor. And that idea of, of drinking it, I think I, I read somewhere that you were watching a movie and there was this golden drink on screen and you thought, aha, that's how I'm going to do it. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I was really bored in this movie and my brain was working over time. And then I came home and started writing this conceit. One of the bigger themes and we've talked to like hit upon it just a little bit is this idea that the children of immigrants really have to do really well. And I'm a second generation American and I totally understand the whole we came to this country so you could do better than us line of thinking and I think you really capture what it means to not want to let your family down, but also really you just want to be an American kid. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is a sense that when you're growing up and you know how much your parents gave up in order to get you this life, uh, you feel that burden. Um, but I think there's another thing that people maybe have heard that narrative before. What I think I was trying to say that felt new to me and I think is resonating with a lot of um, children of immigrants, it's just this idea that you have a limited idea of what America can be. You, your parents arrived here knowing that, you know, if they were hardworking doctors, that they were hardworking and ran a small business, they would then be able to succeed and you would go to a great college and you would be upwardly mobile and everything would be happily ever after. But of course, life is so much more captured than that. And so the characters in my novel are trying to find other ways to be American, um, some of which involve being mediocre slackers, some of which involve underachieving, um, and others involve this gold theft. And so I've heard you say that Neil and Anita each represent a part of you. Yes, definitely. I think uh, so. Anita is this extremely high achiever. Um, she is the one who, on the outside, has it all together. She's doing well in school. And the gold thefts originally are for her. Her mother steals the gold and turns it into this magical lemonade. 
and helps her steal the ambitions of other people in the community. And that's just a little leg up because Anita knows she wants to go to Harvard. On the outside, I looked a lot like Anita growing up. I was sort of comically intense. It looked like I knew what I was doing. Neil, on the other hand, is a little bit more of an underachiever. He appears to be mediocre on the outside. He's not good at math or science. He loves to read and he loves to be in his own brain. And on the inside, I was a lot more like Neil. I felt like uh, I wanted to have this inner life that my community didn't always totally understand. And it was, it's been gratifying to hear from uh, other readers that maybe they, they pass as Anita's in the world, but they've got a lot of Neil in them too. I think there may be some people out there who will want to hold up your story as a, a representation of what the Indian immigrant experience is like in the U.S., but I know you're hesitant to speak for everyone. Can you explain that? I really appreciate that question. Yeah. The novel does try to speak to a collective experience, and I think it's been gratifying to hear from some Indian Americans that they are seeing themselves in the story. But Indian America and South Asian America is more diverse than the world I portray. My characters are primarily middle and upper middle class. Um, Some are Muslim, but the majority are Jain or dominant caste Hindu. And so their experience is kind of a product of this artificial and kind of narrow bubble in which they grow up where everyone's values are the same. I know that I have friends who grew up in Queens and they have a very different textured experience. Um, And so I hope that people can enter this book and say, here's one angle Uh, here. I'm going to enter this book and kind of expand my imagination of maybe a community that I haven't seen before. But also keep in mind that it's definitely not the way that Indian Americans grow up. As a girl from Queens, I have to say I love the little shout out that that was woven into that book in 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 the very I guess like kind of snarky way that you put it in there that you snuck it in there with the the whole pageant answer <laughs> and I just want to say thank you for that. I thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the context there is that, you know, Anita is competing in this beauty pageant and she kind of creates a, a charity to um, help Bangladeshi women in Queens, but she doesn't know what Queens is. She has no idea. She has no context. She's a girl from the suburbs of Atlanta. And so that was kind of my wink and nod to this idea that there's a world outside the suburbs that these kids totally don't understand. And I didn't know about it until I left Georgia. I know some people are drawing a parallel to to like the, the this whole manifest destiny kind of idea uh, of going west to seek your fortune. And, and your characters do that. They go from Atlanta. They, they become adults. They end up in California. Is that also a reflection of, of something that you did? Yeah. I mean, I remember reading the novel All the King's Men my senior year of high school, which is one of my favorite novels. And there's a passage in there that starts, West is where we all plan to go someday. And that's so deeply American. And when I was 21, I drove my car across the country, moved to California and, and had that idea in my head. I wanted kind of a new start, which is this very classically American idea. My characters end up in Silicon Valley in 2016, not necessarily because I was like, okay, what's a new environment to stick them in? But because that is what happens. You know, you've got high achieving Indian and Asian Americans who grow up in the suburbs and then the tech boom happens. And so it's pretty natural that they would end up there. But as you say, the novel is a, it's kind of about ambition. And what is more like a, an example of American ambition than 
this push westward, and in particular, the California gold rush, which drew people from all over the world and all over the country to California in hopes that they would find something new. And the book plays with the idea that, sure, maybe that's ambition, but it's also greed and there are real costs. We did bad things to the West and people lost their land and their lives because of this ambition. And so the novel tries to hold the idea that ambition kind of makes these characters and also unmakes them. And there is a very significant event that happens that I'm not going to mention because that would really give away the book. And I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, but it, it really is. There's this flip side to ambition. And you kind of wonder, you know, as much as as much as you want to make money or you even want to make your parents proud, you have to realize that things can come with a cost. Yes, definitely. And I mean, that's something that I think we elevate people in the U.S. for having ambition. We say, how great is it that people came here to make a new life? How great is it that so-and-so is a striver? In particular, I think people hold up Asian Americans as this so-called model minority and say, look at these kind of compliant hard workers. Everyone should be like that. And the novel really pushes against that idea. It wasn't conscious when I was writing it. I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to unpack the model minority myth. But I think the novel wants people to consider that maybe all that hard work that Americans kind of hold up as the ideal, that maybe there's an underside to it. Maybe there's a cost. Maybe it does something to the inner life of the people who you're holding up as quote unquote models. Are you hopeful that your novel will maybe lead to more opportunities for similar stories to be told? I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, as you said, as we were talking about earlier, it's not the story, but I hope that kind of more people from underrepresented backgrounds make their way into the literary mainstream and that that makes space for a different kind of Indian or South Asian or immigrant story. I think when I was growing up, the immigrant narrative that I heard over and over again was one of the first generation. It was, look at these people who are noble, they sacrificed, but they're nostalgic, they miss their homeland. And while I think that's a very legitimate story, it wasn't my story. You know, like you, I'm second generation. So I wasn't sitting in the suburbs being nostalgic for my old nation. I was just a kid talking on AOL Instant Messenger, occasionally behaving badly. And trying to be myself. And so I think this kind of second generation storytelling will open up uh, the kinds of narratives that we can see entering the American mainstream. And we're going to see your story in particular enter the mainstream in a very like big fashion. That is incredibly exciting. Yes. Yeah. So I am co-writing the adaptation with Mindy Kaling's production company, Kaling International. Uh, it takes a really long time for something to go from being optioned to actually having a show made. We've got to write the thing. We've got to pitch networks. Uh, we've got to convince them that it'll really be a show. So there are many steps along the way. But I'm optimistic. You know, there's a visual language that we can develop for adapting this novel to the screen. Um, the idea of drinking gold is very visually interesting. But then also, you know, when we if we get to that stage where it's a show, I'm excited to put a show on television that has really a lot of different kinds of Asian Americans in the narrative uh, and not just Asian Americans sitting on the fringe or in the mainstream. We've started to see some of that change in movies like Crazy Rich Asians and shows like Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever, but hopefully this can continue to add to that uh, more diverse uh, host of shows on TV. And I mean, I just, it, 
it's really a silly question on my part, but I feel I have to ask it considering the whole context of the book. You haven't been drinking any gold recently, right? I haven't. No, I've been <laughs> trying to be very chill and meditative and I'm I've sworn off the old poisonous ambition. And the I have to tell you the whole time I'm reading the book, I just I have that beat from that Kanye song just like constantly in my head. It's like the soundtrack <laughs> to your story for me. I know. I'm sorry for getting that stuck in everyone's head again, but uh, that's it's the right soundtrack for sure. <laughs> We've been talking with Sanjana Sathian. The, her new book is Gold Diggers. Congratulations again, like I said, on the amazing reception this book has gotten. And, you know, it's a story that I think people need to go out there, read and seek and absorb it. Thank you for having me, Lisa. And just like that, another chapter comes to an end. Next time around, we celebrate Earth Day, albeit a little late, with two books highlighting the steps we can take to protect the planet and all the creatures that call it home. Until then, reduce, reuse, recycle, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.